This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. American evangelicalism has had a unique beginning, one that energized it and carried it along for two centuries and more, and it has been one of the most revolutionary movements in church history, changing the face not only of North American Christianity, but with the 19th century missionary movement, the entire globe. This history has many troubling elements, as many have noted. This is not surprising, because it's a movement full of sinners. But God has been good and has nonetheless used it to enable people from all walks of life and every corner of the world to know the unsurpassed love and grace of Jesus Christ. Still, contemporary evangelicalism is in serious trouble. Actually, its crisis is the same one that afflicts all Christianity in America. At the risk of hubris and of merely adding one more item to the seemingly endless list of crises, I suggest that one crisis lies at the heart of what ails large swaths of the American church. Alexander Solzhenitsyn named it in a 1983 speech. He was talking about Western culture, but I apply it to the American church. In sum, we have forgotten God. What I just read is from my forthcoming book, When Did We Forget God? And what I mean by this is this. Evangelical Christians' strong suit today is the love of neighbor. Just witness the plethora of good works we do today from prayer gatherings to evangelism to social justice, acts of mercy. To be sure, we talk about God a lot and worship Him and pray to Him regularly. But what I mean by we have forgotten God, and believe me, I include myself in that observation, is this. Relatively few Christians take with equal seriousness the command to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. If we do talk about the love of God, it is said we love God by by loving our neighbor. True enough, but that is hardly a complete answer, nor one that would have satisfied Christians of other eras. We want to look at what it would look like to love God with this sort of passionate and all-encompassing fury today, and what our faith and the church would look like if we did so. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Mark Alley, editor-in-chief. So, Morgan, who's our guest that's going to help us unravel this in a mere 30 to 45 minutes? All right. Today on the show, we have a spiritual mentor of sorts of Marks. His name is Hans Borsma, and Hans is the St. Benedict Servants of Christ professor in ascetical theology at Neshota House in Wisconsin. It's a community of formation marked by the fullness of Anglican faith and practice, Benedictine spirituality, and classical Christian thought and teaching. Previously, Hans taught at Regent College and Trinity Western University, which are both in British Columbia. He also pastored a Reformed church as well. Hans explores patristic theology, 20th century Catholic thought, and spiritual interpretation of scripture in all of his works. And he is joining us today in light of his most recent book, Seeing God, the Beatific Vision in Christian Tradition. Hans, it is great to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. 
I'm actually was wondering when I was reading all of this, I had a pastor who left our church a couple of years ago specifically to move to a spiritual community in Wisconsin. And I was wondering if it was the same thing. I think yours, though, is a co-ed community where I believe hers was an all-female community, but it was also marked by Benedictine spirituality, which I thought was interesting. This is co-ed, the one that I teach at, so it must be a different one, but it's interesting to know that there's more Benedictine interest in Wisconsin. Definitely. So... Do most of the people that you're working with live actually at this place, at Neshota? Yeah, it is a uh, seminary within the Anglican tradition, drawing students from both the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church in North America, as well as also evangelicals drawing from the ancient future faith. The MDiv program that the seminary offers is indeed one for which students come to the seminary, come to the house. And um, there's a, a, a strong practice of morning prayer, evening prayer, strong communal life. Uh, there's also some online teaching for other programs, but for the MDiv, students are there full-time throughout the year, yes. Well, very interesting to hear a little bit more about the context in which you're doing your work. As we kind of mentioned, this is a huge interest of Mark's. And so, Mark, I think I just need to see the floor for you. Okay. You know, take it away. What well, is I your... will want to publicly thank my producer, uh, knowing that I'm going to be retiring in a couple episodes. She said, you can do whatever you want, which was kind of a scary thing for her to say, frankly, but... I tried to stay within reason. Her and I have continually arm wrestled over the months and years we've worked together about the relative merits of dealing with breaking news stories or long-term trends. And I'm the long-term trends fans and she's the breaking news fan. But so she's letting me do a couple episodes on long-term trends that we need to think about more deeply. And this is one of them. Yeah, what news can break over Christmas after all? Exactly. (laughs) I'm going to jinx myself, but sure. (laughs) Exactly. So, Hans, you have written a book about, quote, the beatific vision, end quote. So what do you mean by that? What forms has it taken in Christian history? The beatific vision is a term used for the, the promise that Scripture holds out, that in the hereafter, we will see God face to face. Here you can think most emphatically and most obviously of St. Paul's promise in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where he says, now we see uh, as in a mirror, but then we'll we'll see him face to face. Uh, That vision of God in the hereafter is a beatific vision coming from the Latin beatus, blessed or happy. So true happiness, true blessedness will be ours in the hereafter when we see God, which means vision of God is what truly gives us happiness according to St. Paul and according to the Christian tradition. In this life, obviously there are people that have pursued the beatific vision in this life before they get to the next. What does it look like? Is it, is it where are we talking purely about the, the mystics, the medieval mystics, or what? In part, yes, but not only. We shouldn't think of this in too esoteric a fashion. The beatific vision is the end, uh, not just for mystics, but for everyone. So if it's true that God's greatest promise to us is that we will join Him in eternity, that's basically the beatific vision. If that's the promise that God holds out to us, then that end, that telos, determines everything that we do in our life. So whether we go about our daily activities, all of our actions, or whether we spend time in church, or whether we spend time in personal devotion, whatever it is that we do, all of that aims at seeing God face to face. When you ask, well, how have people prepared for this beatific vision? It's basically asking the question, how do Christians live their lives, their day-to-day lives? And in everything that they do, they prepare for this end, to see God. And the reason why I think it's important to, to, to reemphasize that is that it's easy for us to lose sight 
of what's primary in life, namely to see God at the end, so that we, we arrange our lives in such a way that we're, we're preparing in all that we do for seeing God. I was doing some research about you before we did this podcast, and you you write on your website about this idea of a road and a sign warning people about deer, which I think is going to sound a little bit strange. Where is that coming from? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was actually a really <laughs> it, it it was actually a really interesting metaphor, and you kind of unpack it on your website. Can you actually kind of explain? What you're talking about there, because I think it relates to the points that you're making here. So the the, the story of the deer that I that I relate on my website is basically a notion where I'm trying to distinguish between mere symbols and sacraments. So if you have a roadside and you're driving along the road, you you see this road sign of a deer. You're not going to try and avoid the sign for fear of hitting a deer. Why not? Well, for the obvious reason that the sign is merely a symbol. There's no actual deer there. It's when you see the deer come out of the forest that you see the real thing. The symbol is just a symbol. My interest in sacramental reality, sacramental ontology is this. The things that we go through in this life, the things that we experience in this life, the things also that we see around us of the created order, are they simply symbols pointing to something that's far away, like the road sign of a deer? Or do the things around us and the things that God gives us to experience, are there, is there actually more to them? Do they have a depth to them, what you might want to call a sacramental depth to them? Is in some way the presence of God here and now in the things around us, so that these things are actually small as sacraments. And I'm trying to argue in, in, in what I'm writing, and also in my book on the Beatific Vision, I'm trying to argue that, yeah, actually, the things around us make present already, in a real sense, the reality of God's love in Jesus Christ. Well, some listeners might go, okay, how is that different than pantheism? That's a great question. I, it's a question I often get. And the reason I think why we typically today ask that question immediately, that we live in modernity, in a world that has banished God upstairs. Within the history of ideas, this is typically referred to as deism. And in deism, you have the notion that God creates the world to be sure, he makes the world, but he has, as it were, wound up the clock, and now it runs by itself. You don't need God for the clock to basically keep ticking from day to day. And so we've safely banished God upstairs, and he is separate from this world. Now, in such a deistic universe, in such a modern universe, you don't have sacraments. You don't have the real presence of God. And as soon as there's any sort of notion of sacramentality, as soon as somebody makes a comment that, well, maybe God is in some way present here, we're thinking, oh, that's pantheism. So why are we thinking that? Because we're deep down deists. Because we've deep down bought into this notion that God is not really present, but is somewhere else in another place. Well, according to Scripture, the entire world speaks of the presence of God, but in creation, in the incarnation, and in the resurrection. In each of these three key moments within the Christian narrative, God makes clear that He is truly present in our lives and in this world. Now, pantheism, to be sure, is the exact opposite of deism and is a real danger. So if you're a straightforward pagan Platonist, the danger of pantheism is real. I would just say for fear of pantheism. And yes, why don't you define pantheism real quickly for people? Pantheism is the notion that God and the world are one, that God is identical to the world, so that there's no transcendence whatsoever. 
God is imminent in the world, and more than that, God is the world, and the world is God. Now, in a Christian understanding, that would be heretical. It would completely undermine the sovereignty of God. In the Christian tradition, when you say that God is truly present in this world, which is essentially a notion of participation, that this world participates in the life of God, to say that is not to lapse into pantheism. Why not? Because God always is more, always is more than the way in which he makes himself present in this world. The theologians such as St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Gregory of Nyssa, these theologians that strongly emphasize that we participate in some manner already in the life of God, these same theologians also are theologians that truly recognize and, and take into account that God is sovereign, that God is transcendent. We shouldn't play out against each other, transcendence and imminence, as if if God were transcendent, then he cannot be imminent. Or if God is imminent in this world, then he cannot be tra transcendent. Now, transcendence and imminence presuppose each other. Participation, the sacramental understanding of reality, doesn't lead to, to pantheism, doesn't imply pantheism. It is simply a way of saying God truly, truly involves himself out of love with the created order that he has made. So the incarnation is the great exclamation point of this reality, or did it create a new reality of God's participation in the world? It seems like the incarnation is the, the extreme example of God's participation in the world. Is that like a, a, new mo a new moment in salvation history, or sort of blesses all, or blesses or reveals his participation in all sorts of manner? I'm hesitating simply to say the one or the other to your question. And the reason is that in some sense, the incarnation is the exclamation mark behind all of God's revelation. So God reveals himself in numerous manners, and he reveals himself, as Hebrews 1 verse 1 and 2 say, most clearly and more clearly than ever before in his son, Jesus Christ. And in that sense, the incarnation is the, ex is, is the exclamation mark behind all his previous revelations. Eastern Christians often say that when God comes down to us, he always comes by way of theophanies. And you could say, therefore, that the incarnation is the great theophany. And in my book, Seeing God, I'm arguing that whenever God reveals or manifests himself, even in the hereafter, he does it by way of theophany, by way of self-manifestation in Jesus Christ, therefore, in the hereafter. God always, to use Calvin's language, accommodates himself to us. He takes into account that we're creatures. He comes in a creaturely fashion, in the incarnation particularly. The reason why, I'm hes why I initially hesitated is this. While it's true that the incarnation is the exclamation mark behind, of, behind all of God's theophanies, behind all of God's revelations, the incarnation is something new and is something unique as well. When God takes on human flesh, the very language that we're using there, God taking on human flesh. He does something that he has never done before and will never do afterwards. God takes on human flesh. He becomes a human being. God does not become any of the other things that by means of which he reveals himself earlier. So when in the earlier self-manifestation of God, say to Abraham in Genesis 18, by the Oaks of Mamre, the three visitors, or say later on when God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, so God has not become one of the three men. God has not become the bush. And God manifests himself there, to be sure. But only in the incarnation does he take on human flesh. 
So there's something unique that we should never lose sight of, which is also the reason why there's an important distinction, not a separation, but an important distinction between the small s sacraments that I've been talking about, God showing himself all over the place in this world, and capital S sacrament that is the church, and the capital S sacraments of the church, say baptism, Eucharist, and the other sacraments. So if God manifests himself and is present in some way, I guess sacramentally, in all of creation, everybody should be experiencing him, believer or not. Yes, and everybody does. Whether they know it or not. Whether they know it or not. Well, now, talk, again, talk about that a little bit. Again, we need to distinguish here and not separate. Everyone experiences God. God has created human beings with a longing that is stilled only when we see the face of God. God constitutes us. God makes us for himself. As St. Augustine puts it in the Confessions, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Now, only God satisfies, as uh, T.S. Lewis often puts it. We're satisfied often, or we think we're satisfied too quickly. We're settling for secondary things too easily. But only the face of God truly satisfied, and we're made for that. Everybody, Christian or not, is in that sense religious, because they've all been created with this God-shaped whole. This is sense that, that there is an incompleteness, and this sense of incompleteness can only be taken away by God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ. So there's a uniqueness about the Christian faith in that only God's supernatural grace takes us to the telos, takes us to the end, namely the face of God in it, itself. Only God's grace does that. And so there's something unique to the Christian faith. There is something unique to God's self-giving through his spirit in the Christian life, in the church. Nonetheless, that builds on a natural foundation, you could say. Christians and non-Christians share. Our humanity is a humanity that is in some way always already graced. Why? Because God creates the world with a view to the ultimate completion in Jesus Christ. That seems like it has tremendous uh, implications for evangelism in the sense that instead of a pharisaical instinct, which I will admit to, of condemning people for doing all sorts of strange and weird things with their lives, everything from dr drug addiction to sexual confusion to uh, seeking after wealth. I mean, from, from this point of view, it's a charitable thing to say what they're really looking for is this ultimate beatific experience. And they're just they're just going down the wrong path. It's not that they're right. These are yeah. Um, it's the word for sin in scriptures is often we're, we're targeting wrongly. We're we're aiming in the wrong direction. Our desires are misdirected. It's not wrong to have desires. God means for us to be desiring creatures, and our appetites are often misdirected. Whether it's power, whether it's money, whether it's sex, each of these ways we go astray often because we're aiming too low. We're not aiming at the face of God. To put it more bluntly and starkly, those misdirections are sin. It's entirely appropriate to talk about judgment. It's entirely appropriate to warn one another about God's anger against sin. But we should not forget, indeed, and that's, I think, the, the, the key of your question. We should not forget that when we sin, there's even in our sinning a hidden search for God. You're right. That has implications for, for evangelism. Because when we talk to our non-Christian friends, our first instinct should not be to point out everything that's wrong in somebody else's life. 
But our first instinct should be to look in that person's life and to say, so how is this person expressing his or her desires for meaning? When you have a discussion with somebody about meaning in life and how the person is searching for meaning in his or her life, a discussion then can then go to where it is that we find our satisfaction, where we find true meaningfulness in our lives. In your book, it's a, it's a historical theology, essentially. Who have been the greatest examples of people who are praying for and pursuing the beatific vision that we can use as models today? Wherever I went in my historical investigations, wherever I went, I just found people who were so interesting and who were so on fire for the final telos of the beatific vision that I fell in love with almost every every one of the authors I, I, I was reading. And I think the reason for that is unlike today where we have the question on the table, well, is the beatific vision actually the final end of human beings? That's a, that's a real question also among Christian theologians. For, for the pre-modern tradition and also for, for quite a period still after the Reformation, that was never a question. Everybody aimed, everybody recognized that the aim, the telos in life is, is the beatific vision. So every one of these authors really genuinely seeks after that. Now, people who have especially inspired me, let me just refer to a couple. One is St. Gregory of Nyssa, fourth century mystical theologian, great defender of the doctrine of the Trinity. Some of his books, especially The Life of Moses and his homilies on the Song of Songs, are awesome descriptions of of his search and his longing for the face of God and his desire to enter ever more deeply into the life of God. Gregory has been a real inspiration to me. The other thing that I discovered in the writing of this book is Puritan theologians. What I found there was fascinating. And actually, I've, I've come to love the way in which some of the Puritan theologians, people such as Isaac Ambrose, John Owen, uh, Richard Baxter, uh, I've come to, and Thomas Watson, let's not forget Thomas Watson. <laughs> you know, the way they talk about the beatific vision, I've come to love that. And especially because of their strong uh, focus on Jesus Christ. When they talk about the beatific vision, um, they typically talk about seeing Jesus. In other words, they have a really theophanic understanding. They, they recognize that God comes down to us, stoops down to us, accommodates himself to us when he shows himself, even in the hereafter. And the, the net effect of that is that for these Puritan theologians, we never leave Jesus behind. The beatific vision is about seeing Jesus and seeing God in Jesus and through Jesus. You named an individual and then you talked about the Puritans overall. And I'm really interested to hear how you see what you're calling for as taking place in the lives of individuals versus needing to transpire within a particular Christian community. In my mind, the two are linked closely. On my understanding, the church is always first. So the communal is always first. I develop as an individual, as a person within a community, within a tradition, within the church. Let's not just talk about a community. (laughs) Let's talk about the church, because the church is the continuation of God's presence, which he has begun in Jesus Christ, at least to my understanding of the church. We can never think of ourselves as individuals, as individual Christians, apart from what God has done and continues to do in the church. It's in the church that we learn to see God. It is when we listen to the preaching of the gospel. It is when we come to the altar or to the table. It's there that God wants to give himself, and it's there that he brings us 
close to himself and makes us see him, his face more clearly than he does anywhere else. When it comes to the individual, uh, there are individual practices, disciplines that one can engage in. Basic exercises such as morning prayer, evening prayer. You can think also of practices such as Lectio Divina. You can think as of practices of self-renunciation, such as um, fasting or, or other practices. All of these things are individual practices that are meant to form the character in such a way to shape one's character, to submit oneself to the spirits working in one's life in such a way that we become disposed to seeing God more and more clearly, more deeply. That in turn affects again the community. That affects again the church because it is as individuals, as we live in the church and as we model our lives before others and as we live and engage with others in the church, and that we, that we shape the church as a community and that we become, as a church, more the church as God wants us to be. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. One thing that when I think about the types of communities that you're describing, the image that comes to my head is often people living together. So for instance, some people that listen to this podcast know that I went to Teze last year. It had like a residential component to it. You brought up earlier this seminary that you teach at and that it also has a residential component, which I don't want to generalize about how these practices are enacted, but that makes me almost think, I don't, I'm not going to say this correctly, but like of like some sort of like separatist thing. Like you have to be removed from how people are living in the rest of the world. Would you say like to what extent, like if you're going to pursue this beatific vision, do you have to kind of withdraw from where everyone else is? There's a couple of things going on here. One is there's two elements that the Christian tradition, that Christian theologians typically talk about in this regard, and that's action and contemplation. There's always a tension between action and contemplation. What the final aim of the Christian life is, is it's contemplation. So there is a priority of contemplation over action in the sense that the beatific vision is eternal contemplation. And so all of our action that we are engaged in in this life gets taken up in that eternal final contemplation of the face of God. But that doesn't mean that our action in this life is somehow worthless, useless, to be avoided. It doesn't mean, to use your language, that we should seclude ourselves into, into separatist communities, and that we should shy away from the evil world, or anything like that. But it does mean everyone, even the most active among us, need times 
of rest, need times of recuperation. There's a reason, I think, why God makes the world in six days and then as a day of rest, day-to-day lives that we, that we ourselves lead, that we pattern ourselves on that so that there is always the pattern of the, of the six and the one or the one and the six, and we go back and forth all the time. So there's a cyclical element to the Christian life. It's not just a linear thing where we're always moving forward in a life of constant action towards the final end. No, there's a cyclical thing, and every one of us needs both action and contemplation. It would be selfish for someone to seclude himself completely, not to share the fruits of his contemplation with others. So St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, emphasizes that contemplation always goes back to action. When you've been with God, and when you're theologizing, you have learned certain things, you've experienced certain things, you want to share the fruits of that with the people around you. And you do that in all sorts of ways, in teaching, to be sure, and in preaching, but also in the way that you share your life with the people around you. There's always a tension that I think most of us experience, even in our individual lives, between action and contemplation. And we have different predilections, different desires. Some of us are more contemplative, some of us are more active. What would be erroneous, I think, is if we started shooting darts at each other and saying, you're an active kind of a person, that's wrong. Or you're a contemplative kind of person. That, 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 that can't possibly be. No, we need both. And for some, it's more the one thing. For, some, for others, it's more the other. But in every one of our lives, there needs to be a, that, that weekly cycle. You can't do without it. And keeping in mind that all of it ends in what the earlier tradition often referred to as the eighth day. Everything ends in that final eschatological day where we will see God face to face. So always keeping in mind that that contemplation is the end. But within that, there's lots of action. Within the journey towards that, there's lots of action. I think of examples, the immediate examples that come to mind of that, of people who were passionate about loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also led extremely active lives would be people like Augustine, who was a bishop, a very active and busy bishop, Catherine of Siena, who was a mystic, but also railed at various and sundry church leaders for their bad behavior, Teresa of Avila, tremendous reformer, but also mystic. And even more recently, the mystical side of her is more more hidden. I just read her autobiography of uh, Dorothy Day. She's very much into certainly the sacramental life as it expresses itself in the church and thinks that's absolutely necessary to her work in social justice. I'm, I'm seeing so many examples of people who pull them together. My favorite example of this is uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa. He is the mystical theologian par excellence. He's all about contemplation. And yet, he is also the example of the early church, of a preacher who fulminates against slavery. He's a strong opponent of slavery. He never stops preaching against it. And he, he lambasts his congregation in rather sharp ways. He, he preaches uh, to his congregation about their need to care for the poor, their need to care for lepers that they see around them. For Gregory, there's a strong social dimension. There's a strong active dimension to the Christian life, without which the mystical life is a shambles, without, without which there is not truly the contemplative life. In, in, the, in the question that, uh, that, that uh, Morgan er- earlier asked about withdrawing into some sort of sectarian, sectarian separate group, for Gregory of Nyssa, that would have been an unthinkable thing. Yes, there is a proper monasticism, and yes, there is a contemplative life, but we dare not forget either 
that there is a, a working and a praying that go hand in hand. And, and for him, that's an absolute given. My, my concern, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is I'm troubled by my impression, at least, let me put it cautiously, but my impression that our social justice concerns today, those concerns are sometimes too horizontally driven in the sense that we're concerned with social justice causes for their own sake, period, rather than connecting that social justice with eternal concerns. And we're making sometimes, I think, our social justice concerns ultimate. Gregor Nyssa is absolutely concerned with poverty, absolutely concerned with slavery. But he also recognizes that the greatest poverty is spiritual poverty, that the worst slavery is slavery. There is a sense of sometimes in social in our in our social justice concerns, we run the danger of making secondary things primary. And that I think would be erroneous. In no way I'm trying to undermine here the importance of being concerned and 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 caring for specific social issues. Uh, we need to do that as Christians. We cannot do without it. But we need to keep in mind what's primary and what is secondary. Okay, let's say I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, you know, I have neglected the contemplative side. So where do I begin? Depending on your situation, where you begin is you begin with the church. You make sure you go to church because contemplation isn't, again, it's not a matter of simply withdrawing into your little cubicle and doing your own thing. It is a communal thing. So you begin by being a faithful church member, and that is going to church, partaking of the Eucharist, sharing the communal life of the church. That's number one. cannot contemplate God in Jesus Christ apart from the Christians around you. Secondly, I think it's, I have found it at least important in my life to have certain regular daily practices through which also in my own spiritual life and in my, in my own conscience, I hold myself accountable as it were. I've come to find the Book of Common Prayer a real help in that regard. It it grounds me in ways, helps me focus in ways that apart from that rhythm, that that regular practice, I would not be able to do. It helps me to say no against certain distractions. Distractions are, are probably the worst obstacle on the road to the beauty of vision. We're distracted by this worldly things sometimes even good things that take over from our search for God. And one of the practices, therefore, that has been helpful to me is to say, well, at the beginning of the day, and at some point towards the end of the day, I want to take half an hour or 45 minutes where all of these other concerns are are put aside for a moment and where I'm taking time to be with God and to reorient myself. Another practice that I have found helpful is spiritual reading of Scripture, Lexio Divina where you meditate on a short phrase or, or, or on a line of scripture, where perhaps you memorize it, and where you think about its spiritual implications. It's an ancient practice that goes back to earlier monastic tradition, and really beyond that goes back to the Alexandrian Christians. That's a practice that I found, found helpful as well. What's important, I think, if, if people are asking the practical question of how do I do this, what's important is to set aside a particular time at which you do this. When doesn't really matter, but that it be a rhythm is important because without rhythms, we tend to give up on, on, on whatever our good intentions are in a matter of days. So to have a rhythm, to have a certain point in the day where certain things fit 
uh, is helpful and important, uh, not in itself, but it's helpful. Hans, I definitely echo the last point that if you want to make a new habit, it definitely helps if you already know when you're going to do it. But yeah, all in all, that's some really good advice about kind of how to take some of the things that can feel super theoretical and how to make them a part of your life. Thanks for exploring all of this with us. People who want to respond can do so by sending us an email. We're at podcast at christianneedtoday.com or you can reach out to us on Twitter at ctpodcast. Just want to take this time to remind everyone that this podcast still exists because all of you may, well, not all of you yet, but many of you are subscribers of our magazine, Christianity Today. Our January, February issue has just come out and in it we have information about our 2020 book award winners. Mark, have you read any of those books that we have there? No, but the reason I like this, you know me, I'm not a big fan of just plunging in and buying a book that's just been published before it's actually gotten critical reviews or a lot of people have read it and recommend it. So I, I, yeah, no, I've not read a single one of these. But the thing I like about the book awards, it tells me that there's a body of opinion out there that says these are really good books. So I like it for the fact that it gives me options for reading for the coming year as well as Christmas presents. Uh, This year we included a books for children and youth, which we haven't done in the past, which I think is awesome. We have various categories, theology, Christian living, et cetera, et cetera. So there's various categories. I believe Hans Borsma's book, either on scripture as real presence, might have won an award or an award of merit in previous years. So he's been on that list. And hopefully once I retire, I will get to be on that list because as editor-in-chief, none of my books have ever qualified to even be entered. (laughs) So I've been jealous. So there you go. I'll continue to write and hopefully I'll get on that someday. I I think you should honestly not be allowed to be on it. You know, just because of conflict of interest. (laughs) I won't won't be working here anymore. Mm, Still influential. All right. Actually, the award winner for our beautiful Orthodoxy Book of the Year, Rebecca McLaughlin, has also been a guest on Quick to Listen before. If you would like to listen to her episode, the title of that was Sit with your family at church, but maybe not your spouse. That was episode 106, if you're interested in hearing from her. If you're interested in subscribing, it is orderct.com slash podcast, orderct.com slash podcast. And now's the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Mark, feel free. Well, obviously, uh, not obviously, I guess, obviously to you and me, it's not surprising that yesterday was a precious moment. That is to say, the company had a nice reception for me in the afternoon, and people said some funny things and some nice things about me, Morgan being one of them. It's a very nice thing. And also wrote some very nice things in uh, a little booklet that they gave me of other people's appreciation. So, and then my family, my son took a, traveled out here from Denver to be at the event. And my eldest daughter, Katie, was there. And then we went out to dinner at uh, one of these Brazilian steakhouses, which is one of the most incredible places ever to eat. That's about the second or third time I've done it. So the whole day was a warm glow. It was really nice. I'm glad to hear that. Glad you felt special from that. And as we've talked about before, you have this newsletter that is actually not going to sunset when you retire. Exactly. It will, it will so on. you haven't gotten rid of me yet. It's uh, the Galley Report. <laughs> Comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it or get a sample of it by going to christianitytoday.com slash the Galley Report. About a little over 20,000 people subscribe to it and find it helpful. You might also 
find it that way. I link to articles I find interesting and make commentary. Sometimes the commentary is a little long. It's a little sermonic, but there you go. I'm a former pastor. All right. Hans, go ahead. I would point perhaps to an experience I had this morning, and that is my granddaughter who lives downstairs in our basement, and who is uh, not quite two years old yet. She uh, learned her second word, which is cookie. Uh, she managed to squeal for a cookie and was rather upset when she didn't get the cookie. So it helped her learn her second word, cookie. And having two of our grandchildren downstairs in our basement is always a delight, especially this morning as I heard that our granddaughter learned, her, learned a new word. It's awesome. I feel like you're going to probably be beholden to fulfilling that wish that she has. <laughs> I sh- I'm sure I will be. <laughs> yeah. As those things work themselves out. Can you share with people your website and where they can find you outside of this? My website is hansbursma.org. So simply my first and last name strung together, hansbursma, and then .org. There's lots of links there to articles, sermons, books, etc., etc. Okay, that's great. My precious moment is actually another podcast. The podcast is something that I've been telling a lot of people about. It's called Nice Try and it's a podcast about utopias, or rather failed utopias. I found it really interesting about the types of communities that this host ends up picking. The first one that she talks about is Jamestown, actually. Compares it a lot to the idealistic notions that people in Silicon Valley have today. There's also another one about Biosphere 2 that I thought was really interesting. Germania, which was ultimately Hitler's vision if he had won the war. Some of the stuff in the suburbs. Anyway, I thought it was a really great podcast. So if you're looking for something to binge over the course of the holidays, this podcast is from Curbed and it's called Nice Try. And I thought it was super fascinating. You can feel free to chat with me about that podcast or my podcast on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That's it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript of it is available courtesy of Ludmia Shola. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We try to hang out there. And thank you for everyone who rates and reviews it for us on Apple Podcasts. We will see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.